Now, the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And it's skipping what Dan read down to verse 13. In terms of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You guys pray with me. God, I thank you for our time together today. I thank you for uh, the word that you've given me. I just pray that you would make it bless my uh, presentation, bless the words that we're sharing, and I bless and change our lives, make us more like you, I pray. Please be seated. So today we're going to start out and we're going to talk about legacy sequels. You might not know what that is, but I'm going to define it for you. So You'll see this happen a lot of times with movies. Uh, there will often be a very popular movie series, and time will go by, and studios want to make money, and they decide, okay, well, there's still a fan base for this movie, so we're going to make a sequel to it. But it's not just a normal run-of-the-mill sequel or reboot. They want to get the old cast involved, because time has passed along in real time. And so they get the old cast involved, and it's a great way for this old cast to pass the torch to this new cast. And I have some examples that we can share with you and go over. There are some good examples I have bad and bad examples. I'm going to start with some bad ones. This first one is very, very painful for me. I'm going to talk about the Star Wars sequel trilogy. <laughs> On paper, this was great. You have Han, you have Luke and Leia. They're coming back. You've got some exciting new characters. But then when you got to the theater, what did you see? Luke is a hermit who is hiding away. Han and Leia are failed parents, but worse than that, their relationship is broken too. Literally, the happy ending that you got 40 years ago in Return of the Jedi was wiped away in service of a plot that really didn't make sense. It was really three different movies that were smushed together to make money really quickly. I could go on and on, but I'm not going to um, because you don't need to be hearing me rant about Star Wars. Another example would be the most recent uh, Jurassic, Jurassic World series, I think they call it. Um, this is a reboot of the Jurassic Park series from the 90s. Now, the first one was pretty fun, I, I agree, but then it started trailing off into something involving human clones and then genetically engineered locusts. And even though they brought back you know, Alan Grant and Ian Malcolm and Ellie Sattler towards the end, the only thing I took away from those movies is that if a raptor is attacking me, you just need to go like this and stare them down, and then that's how you escape. So there's some bad examples. Let's talk about some good examples. Uh, the first good example I have is Top Gun Maverick. This is a very recent one. Now, Top Gun is a very special movie for me and my wife. This is a movie that we saw when we first met each other. And on paper, again, this movie doesn't make sense whatsoever. Tom Cruise is 60 years old. He's a fighter pilot still. 
I mean, he should be getting his AR, AARP membership card right now. But when you get into the movie, you start watching it, you start caring about this character, you care about the plot, and all of a sudden, the fact that Tom Cruise is 60 does not matter whatsoever. You just want to be, on, be in for the ride. The last example, which I'm going to share and we'll go back to later, is the series Cobra Kai on Netflix, which is a successor to the Karate Kid franchise of the 80s. Just keep that in mind. This is a good example, and I'll go into a little more detail later. So I think what you can see is that when humans try to replace something with something new, the results can be mixed. The great news that we have is that when God is going to replace something with a new version, the results are always better. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So my name is Mike Tomaszewski. I think it's been shown up on the screen there. I am an elder here at the church. This is my third go around. I'm currently the chair of the stewardship committee and uh, been coming to Hebron for 21 years, I think. We were married here. We live less than a mile from the church. So our family is very much called to minister and to be at this particular church in this time. And when I rejoined the stewardship team the most recent time, this is when Henry was transitioning into his role as head pastor at Doug was transitioning out. And one of the things that he encouraged us was to take a look at what we believe uh, as a stewardship team. Not only because it's a good thing to do, but this helps us share with others what we believe. If you don't know what you believe, it's going to be hard to communicate what you believe with others. And so part of the things that we've done, and I hope you try to see this, we've tried to be more active in terms of visibility, uh, current uh, events, just up news updates. We write articles in the Herald, the e-newsletter. Uh, we did a Sunday school class. And one thing we said, let's try that this year, is we want to talk more about stewardship from here, from the pulpit. And we here think that for good or for bad, this has been something that's been neglected over the years here at Hebron. It's a topic that is not very popular. Um, and I think it's easy to see why it can be an uncomfortable topic and it's easy to avoid uncomfortable things. But we truly believe that when you look through the entirety of scripture, that you see the concept of stewardship throughout it. We preach what's in the scripture. So of course we need to talk more and preach more about stewardship. Ultimately too, we believe that we're here in the, the job of here at Hebron Church is we want to see disciples being made. And true discipleship, I believe, will be marked by the whole of a person's life, including their wallet, being put under God's dominion. This is what we're trying to see. So just a quick recap. Let's talk about giving very broad brushstrokes where we've seen it in the Bible, this whole concept of giving. One of the first big examples that I can see is the story of Melchizedek. This is back in the book of Genesis. Abram went to rescue his neighbor, uh, nephew Lot, not neighbor, nephew Lot, and he had a coalition of kings with him, and Melchizedek was one of the kings. He was not only a king, he was also a priest. And what Abraham did is he gave him a tithe, or a tenth, of all he owed. And this was sort of a reflection that Abraham was the lesser, giving back to the greater. And we kind of see this in our own history. Think of medieval times, if you remember that. I loved knights as a kid and stuff like that, so this is very fresh in my mind. But you had the serfs who worked the land, and they produced bounty, but they always had to pay up a portion to the nobles who owned the land. They didn't own the land they were working. The lesser is giving back to the greater. The other thing that is interesting is this, in the book of Genesis, predates the Mosaic Law. So we have this idea of tithing, of giving back, is predating the law. Second, let's talk about the law itself. So in the law, we see that there is an explicit command to give a tithe to support the Levites. Now, in the Old Covenant, 
the Levites took the role of priests. They did not have any physical land as an inheritance. If you guys remember when they went to the promised land, they did not get an inheritance because they specifically were tasked to serve God, serve people at the tabernacle. And to support them, people had to give to the Levites. The interesting thing I see here is that the idea that when you give to the priests, when you give to the Levites, this is a way for the community to participate in God's work. And we see that here today. When we give here to Hebron, the money just does not stay right here. We know that we have a multitude of mission agencies that we support. The money go stays here and then it goes out. It starts and then goes. Last but not least, certainly Jesus in the New Testament one time explicitly mentions uh, tithing. He talks about money an awful, awful lot. But tithing just one time, and since it's Jesus, we're going to read and see where it says. This is from Matthew 8, 23. Uh, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So that should have, I have it underlined in my notes here because it's really kind of an ought. And what Jesus is saying is that you should have been doing this and you are doing this. And the this that he's referring to is tithing. So tithing not only still was happening in Jesus' time, he sort of reflects and affirms that this is a good thing that's happening. You should have been doing this and you should have been doing these weightier matters of the law the justice, mercy, and the faithfulness. Which brings us to the book of Hebrews, which you're reading today. And so I think that Hebrews was really one of my favorite books of the New Testament because to us in the modern times, it is a kind of a commentary on how we can look at the Old Testament in light of everything that has happened in the New Testament. Again, to go to the movie analogy, who here has watched a movie with a commentary track? Okay, just me, that's great, that's great. <laughs> Not a problem. I was prepared for that. So what these are is you're watching the movie and they sort of turn the audio down. And then they have the people who are involved in making the movies. They have the directors, maybe some of the cast, the you know, cinematographer. But they are just watching and going through the movie. And they're sort of saying, what's happening? Sometimes they're, they're mixed. Sometimes they're just like there to tell stories and collect a paycheck. But sometimes they're like, this is what we were going for in this scene. This is what we were trying to do. This is, we we're trying to set this up that happens later in the movie. And sometimes when you watch one of those good ones, even when I would go back and watch that movie, normally later, that commentary track is playing through my mind and I have a greater appreciation, a greater understanding of what came before. So let's talk through about what we read just a little earlier in Hebrews 8, where it's talking about the greater covenant. Verses 1 to 2, what I want to call out here, Jesus clearly has a job in the new covenant. Jesus is declared as the priest of the new covenant. Levites were the priests in the old covenant. Jesus has taken that role in the new covenant. The other thing I want to say is notice what he's doing. He is sitting. And sitting, when you see sitting in the Bible, one of the things that dignifies or signifies, excuse me, is that a work, a job is completed. If you're up, you're active, you're me, I'm I'm up, I'm giving a sermon. I'm not sitting. When I'm sitting, the sermon will be done. But I'm up here now. The sermon is ongoing. Why is Jesus sitting? He said it on the cross. It is finished. His work was done forever. And he is able to be sitting and be at rest. Verses 3 to 5, one thing I want to call out. You might say, where is Jesus sitting? And 3 to 5 help explain where he is sitting. He is sitting in the heavenly sanctuary. And the rest of the verses kind of explain why 
that's different from what the Old Covenant experienced. The Old Covenant, if you've read it, it's very interesting when they describe how the tabernacle, how the temple is being built. It's very precise. It's very detailed. It's honestly very boring. It's, I think I tried to read through the Bible multiple times and I stopped there multiple, multiple times because I was like, what is this? This is just a list of rules. And now you can see this is just a shadow. This is a copy. This is an approximation of trying to take something that's holy and perfect and translate it into human terms. So it's got to be precise. It's got to be that rigid. It's got to be that detailed because that's as close as we can get. If we, can, if we treated it with less reverence, it would be worse copy. It's not going to be a perfect copy, but we want to do the best job making a copy of it as we can. In 6 to 17 and 13, this is where I think we really hit to the point of the claim that the new covenant is truly the greater covenant. And early on, the author is pointing out that the old covenant by itself was insufficient. Why was it insufficient? Well, it was insufficient because we as humans could not use it to attain salvation. It was limited because it wouldn't work to reconcile us to God. It was pointing to the need that there needs to be something else, something greater. And I think, too, just go back to our idea of the legacy sequel. I mentioned the one Cobra Kai. I'm going to come back to this right now. This is an example, I think, a good legacy sequel, much like the New Covenant, not only stands on its own, but it, it improves on what came before. So Cobra Kai is the story, a uh, continuation of the story of Karate Kid. Whoever has not seen The Karate Kid, shame on you. But secondly, it's a story of a kid from, who moves to New Jer from New Jersey to California, Daniel LaRusso. He, it is a classic underdog story. He meets a mysterious neighbor, Mr. Miyagi, teaches him karate. There's a bad guy who happens to also be into karate. There's a big karate tournament. And 40-year-old spoilers, Daniel wins. <laughs> Deal with it. And so you're very, it's just a classic, a classic David and Goliath, the little guy wins story. That's great. The villain of this story is a kid named Johnny Lawrence. And all that you know, if you've ever watched an 80s movie, villains usually don't have to have much detail to them. And this was no exception. Johnny Lawrence was rich, he was a bully, and he did karate. That's all you really needed to know. That's the extent of his character in the original movies. Now, Cobra Kai takes place in modern times, so it's translated through everyone's age, and it posits the question, this monumental event in a kid's life, this, this giant upset of a karate tournament, what would this do to these characters? And the other interesting twist is that Johnny Lawrence is the protagonist of this story. It's not Daniel, the hero of the movies. Johnny Lawrence, and they really explore what this would do. He is at rock bottom when you see him. And then he decides, you know what, I'm going to go back to something that gave me joy. I'm going to open this karate studio. That's where the name Cobra Kai comes from. And he starts teaching kids. And he becomes a father figure. And he starts growing as a person. And then all of a sudden, because of how well-made this legacy sequel is made, you watch the original Karate Kid and you're just like, I have an appreciation for what's going to happening here. I can see this better. And I think that this is exactly when we see in Hebrews what we look at the New Covenant, the New Covenant is absolutely, absolutely superior. Everything we see in it is greater. But that doesn't mean that we just throw away the Old Covenant. We can appreciate that more. It gives us that ability to look at it. L let's look at just three simple ways where, how we see the New Covenant being greater than the Old Covenant. First, we see greater forgiveness in the New Covenant. Um, 
in the old covenant, you would go, you would offer a sacrifice for your sins, sins would be wiped out, but then you're sort of at square one. You start sinning again, and you need another sacrifice, and another sacrifice, and another. It is a perpetual system of sacrifices. Versus Christ's sacrifice, once for all time, past, present, future. Greater, greater forgiveness. Um, it's a greater form of sacrifice. You think of what was being sacrificed in the Old Covenant. It was animals. It was animals. And they had some rules to them. They were usually pure. They are trying to be just these special animals to sort of set apart. But they are still animals. And that just does not hold a candle to the sacrifice being the one begotten Son of God. No question. We also see greater access in the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, you had to go through mediators, the priests, the Levites. And you wouldn't have a direct access to God. We see that in the tabernacle with the Holy of Holies and the separation that the rank-and-file Israelites saw. But here, in this new covenant, that access, we get to go straight to Christ. We don't have to have a mediator. We get to go straight there. And I guess the question that I have for us this morning is why would we think that we were called to give is any different under this new covenant? We are under a greater covenant. We are called to greater giving. This giving means a radical generosity with our time, our talent, and our treasure. And if you are not seeking that to grow in generosity in those three areas, you're not living up to the fullness of that promise that Christ has for us in the new covenant. This is what true stewardship is. This is what we want for everyone in Hebron to see. We want them to be able to be looking outside. How can I be giving back more of my time? How could I be giving more of my money to support Christ's work? How can I be using the skills that I have to help further his kingdom? That's the mindset that we want for Hebron as part of the stewardship team. Now, the one thing I will say is we do get to have a front row seat as the stewardship team to see this happening right now here at Hebron. You might recall that this year we're running a deficit budget. About half of the deficit we have made up because we saved a large estate gift from 2022. Uh, so about half of it's taken care of. But that other half we put on the congregation and we put an ask out there. And you've, if you've been paying attention to the newsletters, you've seen it recurring. We are asking each and every family to increase their giving by $25 a month. And we did some quick math early in the year. And we said, if everyone did that, then we bridge that half of the gap that the congregation is helping cover. And I'm happy to say that through five months, we are right where we need to be. This means that Hebron has been responding to this call in a great, great way. And so I want to say, just in this very public stage, thank you, thank you, thank you. It is amazing and encouraging to see God working in each and every one of you guys. And really, when the treasurer says, yeah, I really have seen this, I, he can physically see the change in giving patterns that people have undergone. It is encouraging, it is exciting, and I thank you for helping be a part of it, and I just pray that you feel encouraged by where we are so far. I, I, I didn't insert that, that was good, no. Um, to close, you hear in this, you're saying, okay, I, I understand there's a call for this greater giving in my life. I don't know where to start. Let me give you five simple suggestions on how to start with this. First, don't get caught up in numbers. When you hear the tithe, automatically your brain goes to 10%. And if you're not giving anywhere near that, that is a daunting, daunting task. That is almost impossible. And what I'm saying is, 
Don't let perfect be the enemy of good. I would much rather hear you see that you start taking steps towards that tithe, wherever you want to go, that end result. Take those little baby steps. Start trusting in God in those small ways. That movement forward, I think, is more important than just saying, I can't do it. It's not even worth starting. I want to see that movement. That movement is healthy. It's an okay place to start. Second, embrace the idea of first fruits. And this, again, applies to our time, talent, treasures that we are saying. When opportunities come up, they often are inconvenient. I can't think of an opportunity that isn't really inconvenient when someone puts something in front of you. This, little inconvenient and scary, but I'm out here. It is exciting. But when these opportunities come up, are you saying, maybe I, I need to think about it, I need to pray about that, or are you saying, eh, no, that's, that's too much of an inconvenience, I don't even want to think about it. I mean, the same thing applies to what we're giving. If you're giving, if you're trying to figure out how much to give, be sure you're giving from what you actually earn, not what you're bringing home. You know, we need to build our budgets with God in mind first. Second, when in doubt, I or second, third, when in doubt, default towards generosity. What I mean by that is if you're really debating, all right, well, I think I can do this, or I can do this or this. When you're trying to debate and figure out what, I, what should I be giving back? What should I do? I think that it's never a bad idea towards lean on the little more generous side. And simply because God wants us to trust in his provision, he wants to be put to the test because he wants us to grow in our dependence on him. And again, as I said, you got to start somewhere. You need to be intentional. If you aren't intentional, if you're just waiting for that raise or this new position to come to get started, you might never get started. Be intentional and plan out how you want these steps, these, even these baby steps to start. Fourth, protect yourself against covetousness. Now, we live in a very affluent society. We see that money equals dependence, money equals security. And so the idea of giving it away also just beyond just the checkbook going down, it means giving away security. It means giving away independence. And that makes it psychologically that much harder. This is a tool. This is one reason why we say that this sort of generosity, this sort of giving is healthy. Because we want to promote reliance on God. Fifth and finally, uh, support locally before looking elsewhere. We have a great church here. We have great agencies that we support. And... All of them deserve support. The only thing I ask is just make sure that you're supporting Hebron here locally and then looking beyond. You hear what we talk about. We talk about tithes and offerings because the tithe, if, if you're a person who's giving just 10%, that is awesome. Bless you. Thank you. But God might be calling you to give more. I don't know what that number is. That's between you and the Lord. But if God is calling you to give more, maybe start looking outside. It's okay to not give all your money here to Hebron. We just want to make sure that it's supported. We're under a greater covenant. It calls us to greater giving. And it also puts greater claims on our life. And that is scary. God, though, promises to work on each and every one of our hearts to make those scary things, those claims, into things we desire. What, we're what we are encouraged to do is to realize that everyone's in the same situation. We need to just care for each other as we live under that promise. May it be so for each and every one of us. Thanks.